Welcome to the April 14th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is 1 Samuel chapter 25 and 26 and Luke chapter 12. Hopefully you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. First Samuel 25. Um, in this uh, chapter, we realize that a major character in the narrative of the uh, the Bible story has now died, and we see that in verse 1. It says, Samuel died, and all Israel assembled to mourn for him, and they buried him by his home in Ramah. Today, uh, David then went down to the wilderness of Paran. And I wonder what uh, this did in the mind and heart of David. Um, of course, he had memories with Samuel. Samuel was the one who anointed him as the next king, but I wonder if he was also mourning the loss of someone that he could trust. Maybe Samuel was someone that he could, as a strong personality, that David uh, could go to him and uh, just feel safe in his presence, Uh, but now he was gone. Um, and I suspect that David mourning his loss, mourned his loss a little bit more than many other people because of just how special Samuel was to him. Uh, now we're introduced to two more characters who will play big parts in the next story, and we see them in uh, verses 2 and 3. It says this, A man in Moan had a business in Carmel. He was a very rich man with 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats and was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The man's name was Nabal and his wife's name, Abigail. And um, it says uh, the woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. So when uh, David and his men were in the area, they sent word to Nabal. And uh, David instructed his men to tell Nabal that his men had essentially provided protection for Nabal's shepherds while they were in the area of Carmel. So David asked if Nabal could respond in kind by giving him whatever provisions he had to help David and his men in the wilderness. Listen to what Nabal says in verses 10 and 11. Nabal asked these, these men that David had sent, Nabal asked them, Who is David? Who is Jesse's son? Many slaves these days are running away from their masters. Am I supposed to take my bread, my water, and my meat that I butchered for my shearers and give them to these men? I don't know where they're from. As David's uh, men left Nabal and were headed back to report to David, I bet they were joking among themselves saying, Boy, David isn't going to like this. Well, it was good knowing Nabal while he was still breathing. Sure enough, when David was told what Nabal had said, he told 400 of his men to strap on their swords while 200 stayed behind. They were going to pay Nabal a little visit. One of Nabal's men had overheard his master yelling at David's men, and he sensed that the matter was not over. There could be trouble, so he went and reported it to Abigail, Nabal's wife. He uh, talked about what David's men had provided that that Nabal's men that David's men had provided a wall of protection about all of Nabal's shepherds and sheep, and uh, you know he was deserving of kindness in return. Abigail, sensing that this situation could escalate very quickly, hurriedly uh, assembled provisions and sent them ahead of her to David. David had asked for provisions, so she sent provisions to David. 
and she was following behind them. Uh, she also did not tell her husband Nabal of her planned visit to David. So she, uh, after traveling for a little bit, she met David as he was continuing to get angry about the injustice of Nabal's refusal to help them after they had been recipients of David's kindness. And as Abigail met David, uh, she did so humbly. She fell uh, at his feet and pleaded with him. And in so doing, she gives no excuse for her husband's actions. She even said that isn't Nabal named rightly. Nabal, in her language, actually means stupid or fool. And she said that her husband had lived up to his name. She was trying to gain David's favor so that he would not attack her family and take their possessions. And in her plea, Abigail, Abigail says something very, very important to David. Listen to it in verse 26. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, it is the Lord who kept you from participating in bloodshed and avenging yourself by your own hand. May your enemies and those who intend to harm my Lord be like Nabal. And then she says in verses 30 and 31, When the Lord does for my Lord all the uh, good he promised you and appoints you ruler over Israel, there will not be remorse or a troubled conscience for my Lord because of needless bloodshed or my Lord uh, or my Lord's revenge. Abigail wasn't merely appealing to David's sense of kindness. She was also appealing to his sense of justice. Avenging himself was morally wrong. She knew that, and she believed that David knew that. And he needed to hear what she said and repent. But she didn't just come right out and tell him that he was in sin. She just said, please don't do this, because then you'll have a guilty conscience later on. And so he, she was appealing to his sense of morality, his sense of of justice. David listened and uh, said he would not do as he intended, but if she had not come, not a single male would have been alive in Nabal's family or possessions the following morning. Abigail went back home to her husband who was feasting and he was drunk. So she waited until morning to talk to him and when she told him the next morning of all that had happened and what David had said, he apparently had a stroke, and he died 10 days later. And as the story comes to an end, I don't know if this is romantic. It certainly doesn't sound like it to me. But as the story comes to an end, David sent for Abigail to become his wife. Now that her husband Nabal is dead of natural causes, David sent for Abigail to become his wife. And she was willing, and so she became David's wife. And we're also told at the end of this chapter that Saul's daughter, Michael, was given by Saul to another man as a wife. This is not the last we're going to hear of that. First Samuel 26. I cannot imagine that David ever slept with both eyes closed. All sorts of things were happening as Saul was always a very real threat. As we read in the first verse of this chapter, listen to verses actually 1 and 2. <clears throat> it says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, David is hiding on the hill of Hakalah opposite Jeshimon. So Saul 
accompanied by 3,000 of the fit young men of Israel, went immediately to the wilderness of Ziph to search for David there. Well, David did not flee. He didn't run away. Actually, he stealthily made his way to where Saul was camped. And he observed that everyone was asleep. Now, we assume that this was at nighttime, or maybe they just... Uh, I, I can't imagine a scenario where everybody would have been asleep. We are told a little bit later on in the chapter that the Lord had brought this sleep upon him, but it seems as if this is at nighttime. And in verse 6, it says, Then David asked Ahimelech the Hethite and Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, Who will go with me into the camp of Saul? Who will go in with me into the enemy camp? There'll, there'll be just maybe two of us, and there's thousands of them, but who wants to go? I will go with you, answered Abishai. So we read that David had another opportunity to kill Saul. In fact, he was encouraged once again to kill his enemy. Listen to verses 7 and 8. That night, David and Abishai came to the troops, and Saul was lying there asleep in the inner circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground by his head. So Saul was in the middle, that he was surrounded by all of his soldiers. So in order to get to Saul, you had to go by hundreds of soldiers any direction you went. Abner and the troops were lying around him, verse 7 concludes, verse 8. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy to you. Let me thrust the spear through him into the ground just once. I won't have to strike him twice. But then we uh, realize that David refused. He might not have thought highly of Saul, but he thought highly of the office of king. Saul had been anointed by God to be the king, and so it wasn't David's job or right to kill him. Just listen to verses 9 through 11. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. For who can lift a hand against the Lord's anointed and be innocent? David added, As the Lord lives, the Lord will certainly strike him down. Either his day will, his day will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. However, as the Lord is my witness, I will never lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. Instead, take the spear in the water jug by his head, and let's get out of here. Let's go. What we see here is a right view of leadership, whether the leadership is in church, government, a place of business, or wherever. It's a right view of Christian leadership. For certain, there are some in leadership who need to be encouraged and help, and we should certainly pray for all of them. Others in leadership need to be replaced. Others can do things so wrong even illegally, that they need to be turned over to the authority. So what we are reading does not mean that Christians should be passive about bad leadership, certainly not about leadership that is doing things that are morally wrong, certainly illegal. We, we are not seeing that we should be passive. So we don't believe that we should sit back passively as people in leadership misuse and abuse that power. But we do see that David believed that it was not his job to do anything about it. God had installed Saul as the legitimate king, and it was God's job to move him aside, even though David was the next anointed king in waiting. Um, it's, and we, we see this uh, throughout Scripture, a proper view of authority. It is not whimsical. 
It is not uh, naive. It is not passive, but it is an active following. It is an active following. Hebrews 13, 17, obey those that uh, have charge over you and submit to them as those who give an account for your soul. Um, That's talking about people's relationship to their pastor. And it's not everything he says. I think it's when he is speaking God's word, submit to that. Submit to that. But... um, but we need to be so careful about anyone in positions of authority. Christians have a high view of authority because we believe in the truth of Romans chapter 13 that all authority has been instituted by God. And further, we believe that those who are in authority have either been actively put there by God or passively allowed to be in that position by God. And so if we move to... Uh, replace or condemn, even the the word of God says regarding a pastor, um, you know, that there have to be two witnesses. There have to be two. He's to be rebuked. Uh, He's to be confronted by at least two witnesses to verify something. And if he's found to be in sin, he's to be rebuked publicly. And so this is not blind following of leadership, but Christians hold to what Paul has said, that when someone is in a position of authority, authority, the default position is to submit to them and to follow them. Um, But, of course, I just want to clarify once again that there are certainly those situations where that default is not appropriate and we need to take other measures. Um, David, we read, took Saul's spear and water jug with him and went up on a mountain. It may have been a very tall hill, but he went up on what the Bible says is a mountain that was a great distance from Saul. And then with a loud voice, he woke up everyone. He taunted Abner for not protecting the king. Uh, He held up the king's spear and water jug, apparently in the moonlight so that they could be seen, to show how close he had been to the king. He had gotten these things from beside the king's head. And then David focused his attention on Saul and asked why in the world he was pursuing David. There was no sound reason why Saul was wasting his time pursuing David. Listen to verse 21. Saul responded, I've sinned. Come back, my son David. I will never harm you again because today you have considered my life precious. I've been a fool. I've committed a grave error. And blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Once again, we hear Saul's words, but David doesn't trust him. Just because someone says something, because someone appears to repent, doesn't mean it's legit. Just because someone expresses regret or remorse doesn't mean it's going to last, doesn't mean it's genuine. And so David asks for one of Saul's young men uh, to come and to get the spear and the water jug, and uh, David is certainly not going to venture down there. Saul had said in verse 21, hey, come back, not on your life. David doesn't trust him. Then the chapter ends in verse 25, This is the last part of verse 25. Then David went on his way and Saul returned home. David doesn't trust him. And I'm telling you, we need to be so careful. Yes, we want to believe that people are legitimate. We want to believe that when people repent or confess or appear to own their sin or appear to turn over that new leaf. We want to believe that they're sincere, but I'm telling you, 
that uh, Christians should never be naive, never. As wise as serpents, but as gentle as doves, we read in the New Testament. We are to be wise. David was exercising wisdom. Saul's words meant nothing because anybody can say anything. It was Saul's heart that was the problem and his mental illness and this evil spirit that the Lord had allowed to come his way. And so David certainly did not go back with Saul. We're told that David went on his way and Saul returned home. All right, Luke 12, there is a bunch of stuff here, so let's just get started. In verses 1 through 3, Jesus warned his disciples, uh, and there were many thousands of them, uh, we're told in verse 1, of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees. And we're told that their hypocrisy is the yeast. And yeast was, was capable of spreading. A little yeast inside of dough spreads to everything. And so their hypocrisy was a little bit of yeast that could spread. And so Jesus said, you beware about that hypocrisy, the yeast of the Pharisees. The reason Jesus warned his disciples and us about being two-faced, about being a hypocrite, is that things are eventually going to be found out. Listen to verse 2. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Sometimes that happens in this life. That certainly will happen on the day of judgment. Jesus said, do not be a hypocrite because your heart is going to be found out one day. In verses 4 through 7, we're told to fear the Lord. Listen to verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. We tend to fear people, don't we? We might want their approval or we don't want their criticism or scorn, so we try to fit in and do what is acceptable by those around us. That is a form of fear. It's peer pressure that we put on ourselves. Yet Jesus said the one we should really fear, the one who we should really pay attention to, is God. People can only kill the body, but God can kill and then send someone to hell. So we need to fear God, but uh, by listening to him and his word and obeying him and caring about what he thinks about us and our actions. And so we see that in uh, verses 4 through 7. Well, in verses 8 through 12, we've actually got a few things that show up. Uh, in my uh, Bible, it lumps these verses together, but they actually, there's actually a few issues, so let's quickly look at them. Um, in verses 8 through 9, it says this, And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Now, I've heard these verses abused before. In fact, they have wrongfully been applied to the gospel. I've heard it said, if you want to get saved, then walk this aisle, because if you're ashamed of Jesus, he's going to be ashamed of you. I have heard these verses used in that context. The only problem is that this, that, that application is not biblical. In fact, it distorts the gospel. Nowhere in Scripture is anyone told to walk an aisle to receive Jesus. 
The way people go public with their faith is not to walk an aisle. It's not to acknowledge me before others. That That's for saved people. But it's not supposed to be applied to the gospel. Um, nowhere in Scripture does it say to walk an aisle. And nowhere does it say that we have to acknowledge him publicly in our conversion experience. Because when we read John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Jesus did reprimand Nicodemus for not knowing the scripture, but he did not reprimand him for coming to him privately. Um, I'm telling you that we put a stumbling block in front of people that should not be... The gospel is a stumbling block because the gospel demands that we acknowledge that we are guilty before a holy God and are worthy of his wrath. Um, That's the stumbling block. We shouldn't add to that stumbling block by saying you have to walk an aisle in order to get saved. That is not what this verse is talking about. The words of Jesus in Luke 12, 8 and 9 are applied to Christians after they get saved not as part of their salvation experience. Um, anyone who acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him. So when you, if you are saved, don't be ashamed of Jesus. If you are saved and you are ashamed of him, then Jesus is going to be ashamed of you. Okay? So that's what it's talking about. Then we hear Jesus talk about another topic, the unpardonable sin. Listen to verse 10. Anyone who speaks the word against a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, my understanding of this unpardonable sin is that it was uh, committed by those people during the time of Jesus. I don't think the unpardonable sin can be committed now. Uh, it happened when folks were in the presence of Jesus, in the presence of the Son of God, seeing him do the things that clearly fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament regarding what the Messiah would say, what the Messiah would do. And so when those people were saying that the Holy Spirit's work was really done by Satan when they were in front of God, the Son, and saying that what he was doing was empowered by Satan, that crossed the line. Jesus' words tell us that when the Holy Spirit is blasphemed in such a way, then that really reveals a heart that is cold and indifferent to the things of God. That person has chosen rejection of God, and they will spend an eternity in hell with their sins being unforgiven. But if someone says such a thing and then genuinely comes to the Lord, and again, I, I believe that the impardonable sin was just during the first century, so this is I'm talking about first century. If someone did say such a thing and then they genuinely came to the Lord, broken over what they had said and desiring to be forgiven, well, I believe that God is so gracious that he would willingly pardon if, such a scenario actually occurred. Then, the third thing that we see in these verses is um, Jesus uh, talked to some folks uh, who were brought before the governing authorities because of following Jesus, and he told them, uh, gave them some instruction, some encouragement, really, verses 11 and 12. Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. These words sometimes are used as an excuse for laziness. The Holy Spirit cannot put verses and biblical principles into our minds and mouths 
that we have not spent time putting in to our minds. The Bible says in Ephesians 6.17, it tells us that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, but the Greek word for word is rhema. The sword of the Spirit is the rhema of God, and rhema speaks of an internalized word. So the Spirit's weapon, the Holy Spirit, His weapon of choice is God's internalized word, not something where you have to go searching for it really quick in the Bible. It is God's word written on a page, but you have internalized it, so now it is in your heart. It's accessible to the Holy Spirit. And so whenever temptation comes up or the scenario that Jesus is talking about, you're standing before people, you are accused of being a Jesus follower, and you're going to have to give a testimony Jesus said, don't worry about it. The assumption is is that they have spent much time in God's word. They have put into the arsenal of their mind and heart many passages of scripture, many biblical principles, so that when the Holy Spirit is in that situation with that person, he runs to the arsenal of their mind and heart, and he throws the door open to that arsenal and pulls out that relevant verse or that relevant principle and brings it to the conscious memory. That's how the Holy Spirit does this. That's how he gives us the words to say. We have got to do the work on the front end and put God's word in our heart. So do you want to be ready for the Holy Spirit to speak through you when you need when you need him to? Then do the difficult task but rewarding task right now of spending much time getting God's word into your mind and heart. In verses 13 through 21, we have the parable of the rich fool, and Jesus tells us a parable of a man who stored up all sorts of wealth only to die. And the principle of this parable is told to us in verse 21. It says, that's how it is when with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. So, Is there anything wrong with storing up wealth? Is that what Jesus is prohibiting here? Is that what he is saying? After all, if the women mentioned in Luke chapter 8 verse 3 had not accumulated wealth, they wouldn't have been able to support Jesus from their possessions. Also, I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy. He didn't say that the rich in in his church, I assume at Ephesus, needed to take a vow of poverty. He did say that the rich needed to think about their riches correctly and to leverage it for the kingdom. Listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Paul said, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works to be generous and willing to share. Storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. And so when we look at the context, uh, you know, of, of, when we look at the, the various things that Scripture has to say about wealth, Jesus is not condemning wealth. He's talking about the stupidity of storing up wealth solely for yourself, not using your wealth and anything else that you have, your gifts, your talents, uh, to store up treasures in heaven. Because when you die, you can't take it with you. 
And uh, so anyway, there's, there's a big topic about this. Randy Alcorn has written quite a few books about wealth and management and a biblical worldview on how we are to think about our finances. Um, I would encourage you to read some of that. Um, I think one of the books is The Treasure Principle. Uh, it's a great one. I think it, and it's pretty short. Uh, verses 22 through 34, The Cure for Anxiety. The cure for anxiety. Now, and it, and it uses the word anxiety in my translation. Um, but uh, in these verses, Jesus tells us not to worry. And some translations do use the word anxiety, but I don't think that's a good translation, even though I just used it a second ago. <laughs> some anxiety is a result of overwhelming stress of life. And that's not sin. You just have so much weighing down on your shoulders that you just have got just about as much as you can take. That's not sin. It can create anxiety, and that, I don't believe, is sin. It's just it, the, the human response to the pressures of living in life. Some people have anxiety because they have a chemical imbalance in the brain. That's not sin. They can't even help that. So it would seem that many cases of anxiety need to be dealt with, but... They're not necessarily sin. I think that the right word to use is worry. Worry is a sin. It's a choice to worry, to fret, instead of trusting in the Lord. Instead, we're told to focus on the things that, that are important to the Lord, and He will focus on what is important to us. This is a remedy for worry. Verse Luke chapter 12, verse 31, But seek His kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. What does it mean to seek his kingdom? Basically, I think that means evangelism and discipleship. Share the gospel and help people grow in their understanding of what it means to follow King Jesus in the kingdom. Verses 35 through 40, um, we are simply reminded uh, that Jesus is coming on a day and time that uh, we will not expect him. So we are to live in such a way that if he comes during our lifetime, uh, he will find us busy about his business. Verses 41 through 48 uh, point to the type of people who are awaiting Jesus' return. First, in verses 43 through 44, we read of the servant who was busy doing his master's business when he revived, when he arrived. This is someone who was saved. And second, in verses 45 through 48, we read about someone who calls Jesus master but behaves in a wicked way. Their perpetual ungodliness demonstrates that Jesus is not their master. So, they are sent to hell, verse 46. He will cut them to pieces and assign them a place with the unfaithful. Well, then we read that there's a subdivision of those who will spend eternity in hell. And uh, it's given to us in verses 47 and 48, where we learn that I believe there are degrees of punishment in hell. Listen to this, verses 47 and 48. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do it, will be severely beaten. But the one who did not know and did what deserved punishment will receive a light beating. What this is saying is, is we need the gospel. We need the gospel. And there are some that hear the gospel and they reject it. Their punishment will be severe because they rejected what they clearly heard. But there are those who, because Christians do not share the gospel, 
they will never hear the gospel. And so they will also spend an eternity in hell, but it says a light beating. That means that whatever hell is, however painful it is, proportionally speaking, their punishment will be lighter than those who sat under the truth and yet rejected it. In verses 49 through 53, we hear from Jesus that the gospel will separate family and friends, and those who choose to follow Jesus may be rejected by those who they hold dear. In verses 45 through 56, Jesus reprimands his listeners for being able to look at the sky and determine what the weather was going to be like while not being able to observe the reality that Messiah was right in front of them. <laughs> in verses 57 through 59, we hear Jesus saying that if someone has something against us and is going to take us to court, it would be in our best interest to make things right before we arrive before the judge. I can't help but wonder if what Jesus is really saying is, there is a God in heaven who we have offended, and we are approaching the day of judgment. We better make things right with him before it's too late. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we don't want to be content that we're merely saved. We want more of you. We want to know you more, serve you more, and enjoy you more. And as we grow in all of this, to worship you more. And as uh, we get our fill of you, that we would be more than ready and anticipating meeting you and enjoying being with you on the day that, that you call us home. Thank you, Jesus, for initiating this relationship and continuing to call us closer. Help us to listen and to move in even closer. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I hope that today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.